Good morning. You got quiet a little bit too quickly. I was still planning on talking to a few people. So it's a great Sunday to be here at church, the penultimate Sunday before Christmas. Yeah, some of you are like, penultimate? What? Penultimate means the second to last. So, of course, you already knew that. So if you ever finish second to last in a race, just tell someone you came in the penultimate spot. And maybe they'll think it's second place. And depending on how they're looking at it, they'll actually be pretty much right. Uh, and that's kind of a sort of trivia thing. You have to know a lot of things to immediately remember what penultimate knows. Which leads me to the first question that I actually want to ask today, which is how many of you... Uh, Think of your, when you think of yourself, you think you're pretty smart. Like, like it, when you look at the chaos in the world, you feel like you might just be a bedrock of common sense. Or in your chosen profession, you look around and see so many other people's ignorance on full display. Not, not that you look down on them, but you realize at some level you are wiser than the average fool. Let me see your hands. You, some of you claim that. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, well... Well, fortunately, we're going to talk about wisdom today, and if you've been with us for a while, we're in week seven of a study through the letter of James. We sometimes call it a book of James. It's actually a letter. It's written by a man named James, who we believe was the brother of Jesus. He was an early church leader and immensely practical. This letter reveals that practicality because He's coaching the early church. This isn't a lecture hall of intellectual exercises, but is more so directions for actual physical things that would be visible to a watching world. So as we've worked through this letter, we've been challenged in multiple ways, and more recently, we've been challenged with the thought of what is legitimate faith. As we worked through chapter 2, we saw that the things that legitimize faith is works or external deeds. The things we believe that constitute our faith are only real, James contends, if that faith is reflected in the things that we actually do. What we believe should affect how we behave. I believe that stubbed toes are very, very painful, and so I don't continually cut around furniture corners as tightly as possible. What we believe should affect how we behave. I believe that generally speaking, in fact, almost all the time, pain is unenjoyable. And that is manifested in ways that others can look to and see. Look, see, Alex is using the oven mitts to take the, the pan out of the oven. And when it comes to Christ, what we believe about our salvation, about Christ's heart for others, about his commands to love one another and make disciples, if we say we believe that and more, it should affect how we walk through life. We saw further that our belief and action should be formed by looking to Christ, to his word, and that we find blessing as well in this lived-out faith. One need only reflect on our recent trip to Winn-Dixie as a church about a month ago and, and how living out our faith brought so much joy. It was mind-boggling, by the way, if you didn't hear about this, to some of the checkout clerks to see long lines of people backed up <laughs> with smiles on their face, being joyful, with carts filled uh, with things not even for themselves. We found blessing in doing. And these are deeds that connect our faith to action, and it brings blessings to our life. 
Last week, though, we talked about the tongue, about how it deceives, destroys, damages, divides, etc., etc., other words that start with D. It was a hard-hitting sermon about controlling our tongue more than what we so often do. And again, if we have this internal faith, this belief, it will be reflected not only in our deeds, but also in our speech, if nothing else, when we consider what it is we say we realize the duplicity of the tongue that was given to us for good speech, but it so often produces bad speech. What we say we believe does not always lead to action that reflects what we claim we actually believe. And this sets us up for today. We know that we have, you know, bad and good language come out of our mouths, and we often often pair things together in our minds. You know, you can think of the famous duos, if you will, big and small, near and far, loud and quiet. When we talk about more spiritual things, we say good and evil, saved and lost, or if you want to give that a harder edge, you could say saved and <laughs> condemned. Uh, but we also, one of our favorites is we like to say heaven and earth. And what James is going to show us is that in the same way our tongue can reveal two very different th things, when we speak, so does the wisdom that we display. We open up our text to James chapter 3 today, where we will follow last week by beginning in verse 13 with a question. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? Oh no. Oh no, what a setup. Can you imagine being one of the people who raised their hand after I asked, do you think you're really smart when you look out at the world? Oh, it's hard to imagine, but it could happen. But there's good news for the wise, and I know lots of you wanted to raise your hand, but maybe in a, a false humility in the moment, you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. There's good news that there isn't necessarily assumed guilt or wrongdoing that's going to be implied by James, but an encouragement to recognize the ways in which we measure wisdom, which we can assume that some people, whether wise or foolish, were considered wise, but their wisdom did not lead to a better Christian life. Again, we are calling this letter that James is writing a practical guide to an impractical life, which is often the Christian life. It's impractical. So let's see what James has to say about wisdom. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. Uh, James here connects the idea of faith and deeds from earlier to wisdom and deeds. What we believe is displayed in, in good works, and our wisdom likewise is supposed to be displayed. Now, someone who does absolutely nothing we could say is wise, but don't we have trouble trusting people who only, you know, maybe say things but never actually do things that reflect what it is they're saying. You know, we say about those people that, you know, that guy is all talk. We, we have that saying. And what we mean when we say this is that we're not convinced that you really believe the things you are talking about. I, I don't think you'd really do those things or that you actually did those things. Nothing that I'm seeing is matching what I'm hearing. And it's really making me, making it hard for me to believe that you are the real deal. And that's part of this. Someone who shares their wisdom in word alone but doesn't back it up. We question, and we should, whether they actually have that wisdom. And so this always actually makes me think of nurses in the nursing field when, 
when I come across this. The medical field is certainly full of hard situations, and uh, if you're a nurse here, I know that you face difficult situations. But, but as a profession, nurses are people who see individuals come in who are, who are victims of drunk driving crashes, junk driving accidents. They are people who see peop- uh, individuals come in with liver failure because of alcohol abuse. Like, they know this. They see this. Yet studies show that one in five nurses will develop substance abuse at some point in their life, and the majority of that being alcohol abuse. Recent studies of nursing students who aren't even fully immersed show that the problem is actually getting worse, that one in three are already abusing alcohol in some form or fashion. And we would say at an intellectual level, certainly shouldn't they have the wisdom to avoid something like that but we see that maybe they don't actually have that wisdom because the result that we would expect to see played out in their lives is not something we actually see. I mean, we do see something there, but it's certainly not the wisdom we would expect. James here says, if you are wise, if you have understanding, it will show up in what you do as you live a good life. And that, this wisdom, also will find itself in the company of, of humility. Wisdom is not simply accompanied by action then, but it's also accompanied by a behavior or an attitude. We see that James is defining how we can recognize this wisdom when we see it. First of all, we will see it. It is a displayed wisdom, but second, it will be a humble wisdom. After all, If you think about it, most of the wisdom we gain is inherited from someone else. It is not something we have created out of our own self. And humility should come in knowing that it isn't all about us. However, if we see it, that is wisdom, but it is proud and it is boastful, we should know that we're seeing something else, something other than what we should be seeing. And that is precisely the point James is going to make as we read on in verse 14. He says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Wait. We spend some time, again, talking about the duplicity of the tongue and how often we see things that are, 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 are you know, opposites or in opposition. Here, James says that this applies to wisdom as well, that there are two kinds of wisdom, heavenly and earthly. And this departs sometimes from our traditional understanding of wisdom. Sometimes we have this idea, wisdom is wisdom. Like, like if you have wisdom, like that, that is what it is. A sinner, for example, we might say, and a righteous man may in turn both display wisdom in their lives, right? It's not a trick question. Yeah, I, I, we'd say normally, yeah, I mean, at any given time, wisdom can be displayed in anyone. But James is saying, but what kind? What kind of wisdom are you seeing, James asks. Rather than the humility characterizing the wisdom we should we find or see, we find that there is a wisdom accompanied by bitter envy, and selfish ambition, which stands nearly opposite or against humility. 
There is a cunning wisdom of the world that is certainly at times characterized by success, intelligence, focus, fortitude, all things that can also accompany humility and good works, but they can also be in the company of selfishness and discontent with what we have in comparison to others. There is the person, James says, who is wise in the ways of the world and finds success and boasts in their wisdom, though their motivations and actions are not directed by their humility and service to God, but it's executed or practiced at the request of their own will, of their own desire, and it is usually in opposition or against or in preference to self instead of others. One commentator described this boasting this way. He said, To boast about wisdom when one is displaying jealousy and selfish ambition is, in effect, to give the lie to the truth about what wisdom is and does. What he means is that calling attention to wisdom and its effects when it's this wrong wisdom, it's this earthly wisdom, it casts a false vision of wisdom that others do see and very occasionally will try to imitate. You need only look at the self-help books that are in our society today to realize people are looking for wisdom from others. So no wonder James addresses it. This wisdom, James said, does not come down from heaven, but it is one, earthly, two, unspiritual, and three, demonic. So it's kind of a strong statement, isn't it? Uh, So we're going to work through this quickly. We have earthly wisdom. That is wisdom, in some sense, if we make it very simple, that is bound to the earth. It is a statement of location, that this wisdom is focused on earthly things, which means it's difficult to focus on things that are of any other location, like heaven and heavenly things. The one focused on earthly things whose wisdom is cultivated to thrive in that environment is going to struggle to thrive in the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of heaven. The second thing we have is that this is unspiritual wisdom. The Greeks had this idea of the soul that that wasn't always tied up to our, you know, supernatural being or spirit, but, but it was an idea more of the center of our desire and will. And so the idea that this earthly wisdom is unspiritual is actually a statement about what motivates the flow of wisdom in our lives, that, that this wisdom is in service to self. The idea of the Greek word used here in the New Testament is always held an opposite of spiritual. It is the condition then being described here in which human feeling and human reason reign supreme rather than supernatural order and divine command. Uh, the third one, which of course... Once you hear it, you're just waiting for me to get to it. (laughs) The third part of this earthly and unspiritual wisdom is that it's demonic. So if you have ever made the statement, the devil made me do it, you probably actually mean something closer to this than what you realize. Uh, if you're not just saying it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but but you're actually in a moment where you seriously mean that, What you probably mean is you made a massive mistake. You're recognizing your actions hurt others or hurt yourself in potentially horrible and often inexcusable ways. Or you recognize that the sinfulness of something you've done is so blatant that you're not even trying to slap a band-aid on your explanation for why you did that. And and you recognize it is so blatant, 
so bad, so sinful, that the thing that pops in your head is that it's the sort of thing the devil would want me to do. And so we say the devil made me do it. So if we're looking at an earth-focused and self-focused wisdom, and now we have an idea about whose wisdom it is added to it. If we speak about heavenly wisdom, are we talking about wisdom that originates with us? No. That, that's God's wisdom. And so we are in danger then if we assume that earthly wisdom we display at times originates simply within ourselves. There's an idea here that we walk in the footsteps following, if you will, the source of wisdom. And if we pursue this earthly wisdom, we follow a trail that we would say Satan in many ways is the trailblazer of. So this is wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You know, we live in a world that boasts. And sadly, sometimes this also creeps into the church, but we are supposed to live differently so people are not led to believe that earthly wisdom is the good, pure, true wisdom that they could have that leads to God when it is not. With all this in mind, we more easily understand why Paul would quote the prophet Isaiah in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he writes in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I can tell we're having a lot of fun this morning. <laughs> Fortunately, though, James does not end this chapter this way. He actually ends on a much more positive and uplifting note. Having given the warning, there is this earthly wisdom, he turns then, let me describe more fully what the heavenly wisdom is and how we might recognize it. But before we go there, Let's make sure we understand that James is not idly describing two kinds of wisdom because he likes to create pairs of things just to contrast as a tool in his writing. What he knows is that we live in a world that, that so much of perceived happiness, success, and comfort invariably gets tangled up with a wisdom that is not kingdom of heaven oriented, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It is always worth considering. It's always worth considering for us all, and certainly for those who would say, I have wisdom or I have understanding, that this is a reality we live with. What kind of wisdom then is, what kind of wisdom is it if, if it's based on, on your behavior and evaluation of that? Or your source of motivation, the presence or absence of humility in your life, the good works it produces in your life. And if we're honest, much like our tongue, we will find that we too easily go between these two different kinds of wisdom, much like the tongue so easily blesses and also so easily curses. So we ask ourselves, where are we earth-focused? What, what time have we allocated for our own personal endeavors that serve self instead of others? Do we find that the path we are on consistently brings good? Because we find that true wisdom produces good works and humility. True wisdom produces good works and humility. And here are some of the ways we can recognize it. Listing them in verse 17, James writes, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, 
been peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What James needs us to remember is that if wisdom can be shown, then there is an external action, again, that is seen by others. In other words, we aren't always left to guess whether someone has heavenly wisdom or not. We're going to know. We can see it, and this list is the practical guide to recognizing, you know, some of the traits of this true wisdom. Uh, first of all, the wisdom from heaven is pure. Pure means innocence and, and moral blamelessness. When something goes wrong, I, I gotta imagine most of you have been in this situation at some point. You're part of a group, something's gone wrong, and the eyes start shifting around to figure out who is the one we cast blame on. Because of the right conduct of the wise person, the blame caster is going to have a really hard time trying to pin it on you. The only reason that could be true, though, is because you've been innocent in the past. You've been morally blameless in the past. They have seen this conduct in your life, in your interactions and transactions, so much so that you just don't seem like the sort of person who could do something like that. They look around to cast blame, and they say, Oh, well, it, it couldn't be Alex, though, right? Well, I I'm, I'm like to insert my name as, as a goal, at least. And that should be the response of others. And that is recognition of something not earthly being present in my life, in your life. And of course, you know, maybe I did do it because I'm a work in progress. Uh, but that's not what James is saying. Like, he's not trying to cast condemnation, but he's trying to help you understand this is the way it looks. This is what to look for, and this is what to work toward. Wisdom from heaven leads you to live this way. This is wisdom that we can and do recognize in one another. Uh, then we have peace-loving. When there is conflict to be had, that should not be our first option. Yep, I'm right into it. I like to enter into the conflict. We may recognize this person in that they are not easily rattled on the team when stress is high, or if they're advoca advocating specific action, they're not doing it by attacking others or tearing others down, pitting one side against another. That's not their style. This is the person who is loving precisely at those times because of their desire to foster peace between themselves and another or between enemies. They are not content to only have peace for themselves, but also desire it for others. Verse 18 says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Righteousness is this right living before God, and it's not likely to grow into a harvest very well in an environment of conflict and an environment of anger. James said earlier in chapter 1, verse 20, that anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. No, we see that peace does. Peace produces that righteousness. It's a call for, for those of us with anger issues to reflect on the environment we are creating for righteousness to increase, certainly in our own lives, but also in the communities that we are part of. While we're not done looking at this whole list James gives us, would you rather learn to live wisely, you know, in these ways by people who are motivated to love and to be peace-filled, peace or would you rather learn an environment filled with envy and boasting, anger, and selfishness? 
The answer is so, so easy and comes so quickly, which we would rather have. Likewise, we should be looked to be lovers of peace, peacemakers in the world, sowing in peace, and then we reap a harvest of righteousness. The next thing we have is considerate. Now, this probably stems from peace-loving as a quality essential to keeping peace. Uh, there are people who don't like conflict. That's a lot of us. And then there are people who love peace. Now, you do know those aren't the same thing. Those aren't the same thing. Because the person who doesn't like conflict could dislike it simply because of the discomfort it brings to self. And so you avoid conflict. But the peace-loving individual is considerate of others and desires peace because of the discomfort and the pain, war, disagreement, and things that the nature bring. That it's not an environment for righteousness to grow. The peace-lover wants to create peace, not just avoid conflict. This is asking your friends, what they need and how you can help when they're down, when they're in disagreement, when there's strife and struggle. Wisdom from heaven says that there is something you can do when you have neighbors who are disagreeing with you or one another and that you aren't necessarily called to stand on the sidelines and watch how it all plays out. But you do have an opportunity to step in and see if you can help find resolution and peace. And that starts sounding more and more uncomfortable. But this is a way we can recognize this wisdom. Welcome to a practical guide to an impractical life. I do want to pause right here, though, just for a moment, in case some of you think you just heard the Bible give you permission to be nosy in the affairs of your neighbors. Considerate and nosy are also two very different things. If being considerate and peace-loving is going to bring conflict to a situation, as what we might call well-intentioned busybodies often do, it's kind of the stereotype that they, they meant well, but they actually made a bigger mess. The considerate person perceives this and does not enter into a situation that is going to cause harm or create strife and more conflict. So maybe prayer is, when looking at a situation that you desire peace for, maybe prayer is your best option at times, not just jumping in because the Bible said so. Uh, the next thing in this list of traits of heavenly wisdom is submissive. This is also a trait of the peace lover. This word means something closer, though. It means something closer to easily persuaded. This doesn't mean the person is a pu pushover or really gullible. It, it means that they're not going to argue over something that is not worthwhile. Like, sure, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to engage with, like, I'll just submit to that because I maybe I don't care. It's, it's, it's not standing up for something pointless or that isn't actually important. I remember, I remember getting sucked into watching a video of a podcast because now they post videos of podcasts and it's, it's not just audio. And I, I got sucked into some highlights and please don't judge me. I got sucked into some highlights from the Joe Rogan podcast. And, and I just wait, I heard that little, little murmur. Uh, uh, the reason I got sucked in is because the, the headline or whatever the title for the video was something like, uh, 
Elon Musk lets Joe Rogan shoot his cyber truck with a compound bow or something like whatever it is. And I'm an American, and I, I had some time to kill, so I thought, yeah, no, I could watch that video. I want to see what happens here. And, and, and what happened is because I also love to learn and I love research, I got sucked in to this podcast highlights because Elon was describing the challenges of production for the Cybertruck. Really pointless information, but I got sucked in. And it was really interesting for me to watch because Joe Rogan kept trying to like add little things. Oh, did you hear about this study or this over here and this and that? And Elon Musk kept just saying, sure, okay. He never engaged in anything that was like, I don't know anything about that study. I don't have an opinion on that. And he just would not engage. It was actually almost an awkward interview because Elon Musk was only going to talk about the things that were important to him and that he, <laughs> he knew about. And it, for me, actually provided in some way, though in a very earthly realm, an illustration of, of what we're talking about here. This is more the idea of the submissive person. It isn't that we submit to the wisdom of the world as superior, but we don't feel the need to engage in controversies or hot topics of the day if they do not intersect or come directly against our beliefs. We kind of have to be over ourselves and the need to hear ourselves. I think that is more submissive. And again, I guess I should take a moment to say, when it does come to things of faith, things that matter, we are not easily persuaded, but we stand firm. Uh, the next thing we see here is we have ourselves full of mercy and good fruit. This is perhaps the easiest for us to picture because you know the definition we sometimes throw around for mercy, that mercy is receiving, uh, or mercy is not receiving what you deserve specifically when you deserve is punishment. Uh, you deserve punishment, but that's not what you're getting. I, I think I've shared this story before, but one day after cooking some rice, our rice cooker was sitting on the stove waiting to be put away. It's not the best place to leave it, but it's large and white and pretty obvious that it's sitting there. And generally in our house, this is a safe spot until the day my son pulled something over to the stove. And for the first time in his life, he turned on one of the burners the one underneath the rice cooker, of course. And he's not supposed to mess with the stove at all. So now he has opened the door for disciplinary measures. No cookies, no ice cream, no screen time, whatever it may be. He's opened the door for punishment. And furthermore, this was daddy's rice cooker. You know, some of you have it. Like, that's your pan. Nobody else, you better not mess up my pan. That's my mug. If you break my mug, you are going to feel my math. And if it's a rice cooker that gets burned and melted on your stovetop, you can also imagine the smell that is associated with this, a constant reminder of my son's guilt. Mercy says, mercy says, there should be punishment, but I'm, I'm going to withhold that. You deserve some form of punishment, but I'm not going to give that to you. That is mercy, and it produces good fruit, opportunities to teach, to love, to bring peace into situation, and it is this merciful instinct that, that produces an action where I could come home and yell, 
and be angry and remind my son constantly about what it is that he did. By the way, he just turned three. He reminds himself of things all the time. Uh, and he'll also remind you of things that I've done that are wrong. So please don't go find my son and talk to him too much. But this is the manifestation of heavenly wisdom. So if we ask ourselves, like, what does this look like in your life? Who, who is upsetting you right now? Which coworker is always on your nerves? You know, the person who has wronged you and actually deserves punishment. James isn't saying that punishment is no longer in the picture. We know that there's judgment and that there's things that, well, we reap consequences for the things in our lives, but, but he is saying that one with heavenly wisdom does increasingly have a response that is merciful. And you can probably think of people that you could respond to more mercifully right now. And in fact, you can probably think of some people that you've been unmerciful for, that you maybe need to go back to and apologize and seek forgiveness from, because sometimes we think we're being merciful or unmerciful and we're just being angry. Or we're wrong and they didn't deserve the punishment. This is heavenly wisdom. James writes, wraps up this list with impartial and sincere. We've already addressed favoritism or, or impartiality in previous passages. So James is, in some ways, I think, this is my opinion. I think it's really clever here to include sincerity as part of the equation because sincerity is not essential to being impartial. You know, we can work against showing favoritism to forcing some sort of equitable approach to things in life that in ways that are unhealthy and not God-honoring ways. And we can do that much more out of an obligation rather than a sincere desire to see others treated equitably. For that matter, I think sincerity is a great capstone to this list because it can really go back and we can reevaluate all the others through the lens of sincerity. You can show mercy. We just talked about it. But your response could be much more in that moment. It's fine. It's, it's, it's no big deal. You know, just don't do that again. And the person you've showed mercy to might feel more so that they just got lucky rather than that you are genuinely a merciful, loving, kind, peace-loving individual. They'll recognize that that was not the sincerest, sincerest expression because there, I mean, there's a difference. Do you hear it? Do you hear the heart of sincerity coming through? sincerity says, rather than saying, I don't care, which might actually be an honest response at times, but like, it might be saying, you know, I'm going to be submissive because I, you know, I'm not really into that, or I have opinions, but I don't really think it's helpful for me to go around sharing them, but I'll listen to what you have to say on that. When people hear that, they're hearing something different than I don't care, or you pretending like you're interested and listening, and you don't really fool people at all. This is sincerity. And if you can say things like that with sincerity, you are certainly manifesting a wisdom that is not earthly. 
So we have this picture of the ways heavenly wisdom manifests in our lives. We look for the pure, peace-loving, considerate submission, merciful with good fruits and impartial while sincere things displayed in our lives. And it kind of makes you wish we could spend more time digging into the elements of heavenly wisdom and how to recognize how these are displayed in our lives. Doesn't it? Like, it's quite a list. Well, I have good news. There is a way. I am, through much strenuous research and development, ready to share with you a two-step process to lead you down the path to heavenly wisdom. And you don't even have to pay for the sneak preview I'm about to give you. This is that moment where the senior pastor eyebrows start going, creeping up a little bit. (laughs) When we think about wisdom, it's perhaps prudent to reveal what in the Bible we refer to as wisdom literature. What we find is the foundational start of wisdom presented to us, and my favorite place to start, is we read in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. If you go to it, that's what it says. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. But, but, but that really doesn't help. I, I know I need to get wisdom. That's why I'm here. That doesn't help me at all. And if that's your honest, sincere response to this verse in the Bible, congratulations. You've already entered the program. You are in step one. If you don't have a desire to increase in wisdom, step one does, in fact, start with this. Get a desire to have wisdom so that you're looking to get wisdom. Simple enough? So so write that down. Step one, get wisdom. But how? Where do you get wisdom? You know, we read in lots of places about wisdom. I like reading Colossians 3.16, these wise words that say, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. There's lots of verses like that, but the idea in large part here is that to get wisdom, you surround yourself with wisdom, which is found in the instruction and admonishment brought by wise individuals in your life, and it can also be done through psalms, through hymns, things that we lump together all in one category often now. But why would we pursue these things together? Oh, Proverbs 1-7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if that's true, we need to know more about the Lord. And so we put ourselves in a place to learn. We learn the message of Christ, the gospel, and we often do those things best in community. And we are even further blessed to have the word of God so accessible to us that we are, are, if you have a Bible, in a place to perpetually pursue or get wisdom. James, earlier in chapter 1, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God for more. We both, in our prayers and where we place ourselves, show our heart for gaining heavenly wisdom from the source of all wisdom. So step one, get wisdom. Step two, practice wisdom. Considering the idea of faith and deeds, wisdom and good works, if this snuck up on you, I don't even know what to say. (laughs) Earlier in James 1, verse 22, he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do it. As we learn about the ways we should think and act, and we understand God's will and God's wisdom for us through his word, we have to start letting that shape the way that it reveals itself in our lives. And notice that the step says practice. 
Did you know practice does not imply perfection? Practice doesn't imply perfection. So maybe there is someone you should so, show some mercy to. Maybe that name popped into your head and you're like, God, please don't put that on my heart right now. And that name's in your head and you're worried that you're going to screw it up. Someone you should and can be more considerate towards. Some place or relationship that is in desperate need of peace. Biblical wisdom leads us to, to doing these things. And you may be surprised that in your insufficiency, in your weakness, that you will find something more about God's sufficiency for us as you walk in obedience, trying to display the wisdom that comes not from us, but from God. Do we trust his wisdom enough to take that next step and practice this wisdom? Besides, how are you going to become more merciful if you never are merciful? It won't happen. But Alex, I might make a mess of it. Yeah, you might. <laughs> Words of encouragement this morning. <laughs> Practice can be messy. But pray. Get wisdom about how to act and love that individual beforehand, surrounding yourself by others who can build you up, spending time in God's word, and you're going to put yourself as close as possible to the place of hev heavenly wisdom, and the elements of that will show up in your life. I believe that. So maybe you mess up. Maybe you don't do it perfectly. Maybe you're merciful in a two-minute conversation for 30 seconds. But man, maybe you learned something. And maybe that 30 seconds plants something that you can go back to with that individual in that situation. And you can confess, hey, I messed up. And you try it again. Maybe you show some impartiality, but in a resulting conflict because you showed favoritism to someone else, you find yourself becoming more considerate or more submissive. Today, one of these elements of heavenly wisdom probably stuck out to you. You related to it because of something you're going through or someone you know or because you haven't thought of it before. The challenge today is to think more about that. Read your Bible. Find, you know, do a search. Google is incredible for some of this. It's also dangerous. Do a Google search for Bible verses and read the verses themselves. Maybe steer clear of some articles that you might find. Do a Bible search on this thing. Look for opportunities to do something with it and practice we say James is a practical guide to an impractical life, and the more I look at it, the more I'm convinced that all of us, church, we're all just practicing together until Christ returns.